But I also think that I put so much into it that there was no way that I wasn't going to succeed. And if I had to fight guys, if I had to trash talk guys, if I had to do whatever I needed to do, I did it. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk downs. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Don McLean is the all-time leading scorer in Pac-12 history, scoring over 2,600 career points while megastar at UCLA. He was drafted in the first round of the 92 NBA draft. He played nine years in the NBA, and now he's one of the best college basketball broadcasters in the country. And now Don McLean is joining me on the Great Point Podcast. Don, how are you, sir? I'm great, Adam. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for uh, for jumping on. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Don, I, I want to ask you, as I ask a bunch of the guys that come on the podcast, what's your earliest basketball memory? Well, it's interesting. It's this time of year. My earliest basketball memory is where I used to live growing up in Simi Valley, California, a pretty tight-knit neighborhood. And they used to have a guy, one of the neighbors, dress up as Santa Claus every year. And obviously everyone's parents would tell Santa Claus or get Santa Claus what, you know, he was going to give to us. But when I was four years old, he brought me my first real basketball. And from then on, you know, not like the storybooks of from then it was, you know, straight to basketball stardom. But I really, I remember that. And I remember at an early age, really loving to play basketball. I played other sports, baseball, soccer, even some tennis. Um, but basketball was always the number one thing. When did you first know that you could really play? Well, you know, Adam, I bought into back then of reading and hearing about guys that played every day. And, and not that everybody plays every day, every single day, but I really believe that. So I want to say it around – eight or nine years old, I was playing every day. And because I thought that's what, you know, the really good players did. And there was a park about a quarter mile from my house that that's where I went to play. And there was other, sometimes there's other kids there. Sometimes there wasn't, but you know, I started to put in the work. I, I understood that to be good at basketball or anything for that matter, you had to work at it. And I don't know how or why I understood that so early, but, like, I was jump roping in the backyard at 8, 9, 10 years old because, you know, I saw <laughs> that other guys were doing that. And so you don't really see that that much anymore. But back then, I really believed it, and so I did it. You end up going from there, from that impressionable young age when you were working that hard. You end up becoming a great, great player for Simi Valley High School. Uh, what are your high school memories playing basketball? Well, that was at the very beginning of AAU becoming really important back in the, the late mid to late 80s where tournaments, you know, there was a McDonald's game in, in the Dapper Dan 
you know, there's more games now, all-star games, all-American games. But that was when Sonny Vaccaro's Nike ABCD camp had been going for a few years, and that was a big deal. And that that was where everybody kind of made their name um, nationally in terms of recruiting. And I think playing well there, I went there for two years before my junior year and before my senior year, and I think that's where I really started to, you know, become more of a more more known nationally um, by more schools. Our AAU team was off the charts. It was Chris Mills and Sean Kemp and Derek Martin and James Moses who went to Iowa. I mean, we were loaded, and I think that was part of it too. But you know, for my high school team, we. You know, we we had a lot of success. It was only a three-year high school, so I only played three years. Um, but we we were a good team. There was other good players. Two other guys that I played with played Division One, um, and so it was fun. It was fun, not only being able to play at the highest level in the summer, but also coming back and playing on a high school team. That, and the, and the one interesting thing I forgot to mention is my my high school team. We started out as like a youth team when we were five years old and the coach at the high school, his son was my age. He coached us when we were from five till we were like 10 before, you know, I really started playing more of the, the travel AAU stuff. It was a local team, but we went around to different cities and played against them. And so we, we kind of splintered off in the middle there, but then came back and all went to the same high school. And I think that's part of the reason why we had a lot of success. What what about in terms of your actual physical growth? When did that come about? You know, I was tall all the way through. Both my parents were tall. My dad's 6'8", my mom's 6'1". And I was, you know, I wasn't one of those kids that grew eight inches in a year. I was just always tall and kind of grew a couple inches every year. I mean, I was, and I remember it went by two inches. I was six feet in sixth grade, 6'2 in seventh grade, 6'4 in eighth grade, 6'6 in ninth, and then 6'9 and change and 11th or so and that's where it stopped here you are a guy six six you said as, as a freshman obviously really good player during your your high school years you go to abcd camp playing for sunny and and against all the best players in the country so the recruiting starts to ramp up what are your first memories of uh your early early recruitment well, for everyone, I think, and they're lying if they if they don't admit it. When you get your first couple letters, it's pretty cool. And you know, <laughs> I started getting letters in eighth grade, um, wow. and you know, they're not really personal letters. You put, play in a tournament or something, you get on somebody's mailing list. But I still thought it was pretty cool. And um, <laughs> you know, my high school coach, because my dad really wasn't around, my high school coach kind of managed my recruitment to a certain degree. Like the, he set out some rules. He sent out a letter to all the all these coaches, you know, it was me and my mom and my sister. And back then it was, you could call however many times you wanted, you could, you know, and it was, we didn't want it to turn into a circus. So there was some ground rules and some, some, some parameters put on it, but it was, it was pretty cool. You know, once I got to the fall of my senior year, when you have all your official home visits, it's pretty cool watching Mike Krzyzewski and Dean Smith and Jim Beheim and, all these coaches come through Jerry Tarkanian and sit in your living room and basically, you know, tell you why you should go to their school. And, um, but the, the thing, and I don't want this to sound the wrong way, Adam, but, and I think because I had worked so hard and, and it put so much time in it, I wasn't that surprised by it. You know, it was almost like I assumed that I would be being recruited by those guys. And I think that mentality's kind of helped me my, 
especially throughout my basketball career, but really throughout my whole life, you know, that, you know, you can't be surprised that good things happen if you put in the work. And um, so then I took, I took my five officials to uh, Pittsburgh, UNLV, Kentucky, Georgia Tech and UCLA. And, um, you know, always kind of wanted, didn't want to go far away, but would have if that was the best situation. And it turned mm-hmm. out there was a coaching change in the middle of my senior year at UCLA, and Jim Herrick came in, and I had had a relationship with him because he and my high school coach had been friends. And when he was at Pepperdine, that's obviously about you know 25 minutes from Simi Valley. Um, so when he got the job at UCLA, it made it that much more um, interesting to go there, and that's eventually where I ended up going. You said you you sort of expected it. But at the same time, what were you looking for in college at that time? You know, and, and it was smart at the time, and I'm not sure who, you know, kind of programmed me or made me think this way. But, you know, a lot of a lot of programs sell guys on, hey, you can come here and be, play behind so-and-so and really learn from him. I didn't believe that. I believed that you learn by playing. Mm-hmm. So really those five schools that I visited – there was an opportunity, a real good opportunity to start as a freshman. And to me, that obviously the academic part, and it was at a good school, was part of it. But to me, in terms of basketball, that was the biggest thing. If there was a lot, like Arizona at the time was starting to roll, but Sean Elliott was there. And I wasn't going to play in front of Sean Elliott. So, you know, mm-hmm. to me, Arizona was out quickly, not because Arizona, Arizona wasn't a great program. It's just I, I probably wouldn't have played at all as a freshman. And so that was the determining factor. UCLA the year before, I believe, I know they were 16 and 14 or 16 and 15, didn't play in the NCAA tournament. So there was opportunities there. If I was good enough, there was opportunities there for me to step in and play right away. So is your mindset at that time too, in in terms of the idea of playing right away, is your mindset, hey, I need a stepping stone that's going to get me to be as high of a draft pick in the NBA as possible? You know, at that time, Adam, that, that wasn't the mentality at all, and it's a shame that mm-hmm. it's not like that anymore. Any high-level kid that's a McDonald's kid or a top 50 kid even, all they're thinking about is where do I go so that I can get to the NBA? It wasn't like that back then. You know, it had just started where, like, Shaquille O'Neal declaring after his sophomore year was a big deal, you know, and that was, I think, a year or two later. You know, guys weren't going for just one year yet. They were they were staying. If you were really good and you, you were projected, you know, you were going after your junior year at the earliest. Mm-hmm. So, to me, back then, you were going to play big-time college basketball, and the NBA was after that. Do you remember the day that you signed vividly? Signed my letter of intent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, to me – it wasn't about that. It was like, oh, yeah, of course UCLA is recruiting me, and of course I'm going to go there, and I'm going to, you know, be a good player <laughs> there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, <laughs> exactly. that, that kind of stuff really wasn't a big deal for me. I was, I was kind of tunnel vision to, you know, getting there and making my mark as a player. Well, you said the family had had limitations though, but I'm sure it still got pretty crazy. So how how crazy did the recruitment get? 
I mean, it it really wasn't that crazy. I mean, there was in in one one little thing that we did was instead of it being a free for all in terms of the phone ringing, they were only allowed to call on Sundays from a certain in a certain time window. So I would spend you know every Sunday night or you know I forget what the time was, but it was like a three or four hour window where these guys could call, and that was the only time that they were allowed to call. So that really managed it. So it really wasn't that crazy. I mean, there's a lot of coaches coming to my games in high school, and obviously in the summer circuit, they're everywhere. But I think that was the biggest thing in the buzz around our campus at, at Simi High School was, hey, did you see Lute Olson's at the game or, you know, whoever's at the game? And, you know, but that really wasn't that crazy either because they couldn't talk to you. <laughs> they were right, just at the game right. watching. So you go to UCLA, and as you described, you make an impact right away you average nearly 19 points a game as a freshman what did you find to be the biggest adjustment going from high school ball to college ball you know the one thing the one thing that and i forget who i heard it from it was a coach i think during the recruiting process about being in the best condition that you can be in and I remember I had, you know, I'd worked out and I'd lifted some weights and obviously our, our high school program did some stuff in terms of conditioning. But I remember before the summer before going to UCLA, I really ramped it up and I was in such great condition that the speed of the game really didn't bother me. I think like almost every freshman, there was physical parts of the game in terms of, you know, physical playing against more physical guys that I struggled mm-hmm. with at times. But the one thing that, that I was good at is I could shoot, and I understood how to get myself open. And I think that was a big deal. And we ran the UCLA high post, which is a forward offense. You know, it really, I don't want to say caters to, but if you if you run the UCLA high post offense, it's because you have good forwards. And I played right. with Trevor Wilson, who was a very good player at UCLA. And mm-hmm. I got opportunities. And I think the other thing was, maybe the biggest thing is I played with Pooh Richardson, who was a senior and he was a 10th pick in the draft after that year. And he's the best, that year was the best year I ever played with a point guard. I mean, he laid it on a silver platter for me the entire year. And I always tell him whenever I see him that I was good and I made shots, but he made it so much more easy for me to get, you know, not easy looks in transition, easy looks in the half court. And I think that was a big reason why I had such a good freshman year. That's because he is a Philly guard, Don. That's the reason. That's true. That that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One thing I I wondered about your your college career, and I was just going back and refreshing myself watching some old tapes today, was that you were incredibly competitive. Uh, And that's a that's a nice way of putting it, Adam. You could say (laughs) it. I was a big a hole for four for four years. (laughs) Well, Well, tell me about that. Where did where did all that where did all that come from? It's a great question, and, you know, for my entire life, and I don't know when it started, I don't know where it came from, but I played with an enormous chip on my shoulder for some reason. And, you know, I think understanding to play with intensity was part of it, but I also think that I put so much into it that there was no way that I wasn't going to succeed. And if I had to fight guys, if I had to trash talk guys, if I had to do whatever I needed to do, I did it. Looking back on it, I was immature to a certain degree um, in some of the stuff I did. 
But on the other hand, I think that fire that I played with really helped me um, succeed throughout. I mean, you get dealt different things and different things come up and situations. And I really think that just playing with that intensity that I played with, you know, created a lot of the success that I had. And, you know, the one thing I am proud of about my college career is that I was really, really consistent, you know, and, and I've never, I haven't talked about this really on air before with people. I've talked with people about it off, off, off air, but, you know, people say a lot of things about Kareem and how he only played three years and I wouldn't have the record if he played four. That's 100% true. And I've never, ever even considered the fact that I'm in the same ballpark with he or Bill Walton and some of the greats that have played at UCLA. But but the one thing I am proud of is that I have that record because I was ready to play every night and played with that intensity. You know, I think there was only two games in my career where I didn't score in double figures. And you can say, well, you were the focal point of the offense, and that's true. But a lot of guys have nights where they don't feel like playing or don't get themselves mentally ready to play, and they don't get they don't get double figures, and they don't score, you know, 70, 20 point games and all that. And that's the part I'm proud of is that I know that I can look in the mirror and say, I was ready to play every single time I played a game at UCLA. It doesn't mean I played great every game, but it means that I was ready to play. And I see guys nowadays that you can just tell that they haven't spent the time that they need to, to get themselves ready to play. You know, you can't just show up at the gym and expect it to go well. You know, you have to get yourself locked in, ready to go, and playing with, you know, as much effort and energy and intensity as you can. And to me, that's somewhat of a lost art in today's game, but that's a whole nother conversation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Well, in, in terms of the, the, the scoring record, and you look back at articles from that time and everything, um, there was there was backlash almost as if, you know, as with anyone that breaks a record, it seems like that people, you know, held that, that record above all else. And, and uh, you know, what Kareem had done during, during his stretch and obviously mm -hmm. what Bill Walton had done and all, and all that, how much were you hearing about that and how much pressure did you feel at that time? Well, here's, here's what I know about that. And I knew it at the time, didn't spend much time thinking about it, but I think about it now when it comes up. And, and, and I do think this, the LA media, you know, there wasn't as much national media as there is now. It's not as easy to cover or it's easier to cover now than it was back then. But I do in kind of tying these two topics together, there was a lot of people that didn't like me because of my attitude and some of the stuff I did on the court, the technical fouls and that kind of thing. So I think there was mm -hmm. a lot of people waiting, waiting to, 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 I don't want to say undermine, but, um, take the other side when I broke that record. Like there was a lot of people eager to jump out and say what I just said earlier that, well, Kareem only played three years and, you know, and that's true. But I think it was, it was, it was more brought to the forefront because of people not liking me and not liking the way I played. And so, right. and I understood that. I understood that, you know, how I played and what I did, that there would be some backlash and that articles that were written weren't always as positive as they probably could have been considering, but that, that was it. 
and I knew it. And, um, you know, I look back on it now and wish I had been a little bit different. But I would, like I said, I wouldn't take back any of the on-court stuff. Right. What would you have done differently? I could have ratcheted back some of the extracurricular stuff. It's one thing to play with a lot of fire and intensity, but another to be John at guys the whole time and, and getting on the referees all the time. I, I could have taken that back some. You know, I, it was it was a little over the top. You know, I was really aloof with the media. Certain once Once I figured out, Adam, that they were kind of against me, which I would say after – my freshman year, I kind of was starting to understand that people were, you know, not being as positive as they could be. Right. I started being really aloof with them and not not um, not being as cooperative, I guess, as I could have been. That kind of stuff. And now that I'm in the media, I really understand it more, and I wish I had been better that way. Like, there was times where if we lost and I played bad, I would go straight to the weight room and not even address to me. I would literally take off my jersey, put on a T-shirt, go straight to the weight room and be in there until everyone was gone. You know, just stuff like that that you really shouldn't do, but I did. But at the same time, to be fair to you, I mean, you, you referenced it before that your confidence, your your competitiveness is also what – when you look back at your career, it's what made you so successful, right? So, yeah, and that's why, and that's why I'm not sitting here telling you, man, I really screwed up. I should have been different. I'm not saying that. There, there's certain, mm-hmm. there's certain instances that that I would, I would like to go back and change. But overall, overall, I wouldn't change a whole lot because to me, I felt like at the time I needed to be a certain way to get the results that I wanted, and so. Right. That's the way I was the way I was, I guess. One thing that um, I found in terms of your playing style, which when you go back and look at history, is that you've almost created the position of stretch four. It's not like you made a ton of threes when, when you were in college, but in terms of shooting 17, 18 footers, I mean, you were a guy that defenses had all types of problems with because you could post up and then step outside and shoot it like we see from stretch fours today. Where did your game sort of come from, and how much of that did you recognize was a problem for the defense when you played on a well, nightly basis? Well, I, I was I was a big guy growing up, and along the way, you know, again buying into what people would say about practicing every day and all that. Um, mm-hmm. People would tell me, you know, you need to develop the rest of your game, and you know, when you want to become a good basketball player, what do you do? You shoot right? You go to the park or the school or your house and you shoot. That's what basketball is. And so I decided that even though as a really young kid, I was in the post and they were throwing it into me and I'm shooting jump hooks and all that, that if I really wanted to be good, I needed to be able to handle it. I needed to be able to shoot it. And fortunately for me, I've always had really good hand eye. And so now you're talking about not to get into the whole Gladwell thing, but now you're talking about 10,000 hours shooting a Mm -hmm. basketball with pretty good hand eye, you know, you're going to become a really good shooter. And so, you know, at 6'10", being able to shoot the way I did, Jim Herrick recognized it. And I knew also along the way, I'm not sure when, but that if I did get to the NBA, there's no way at six, you know, at six, nine and a half, 220 pounds, I'm going to be, you know, playing against, you know, <laughs> Kareem or whoever down there. So I'm probably going to be a forward. So I'm going to have to have some forward skills, and I developed those. And it was a weapon. And you're right, in college back then, 
guys my height, nobody could shoot. And so it, it was a weapon, especially in that high post offense where there's a lot of, you know, coming up to the free throw line, catch and shoot, popping out to the wings, catch and shoot, that kind of stuff. I was able to make those shots. And at certain times during my career at UCLA, I was the tallest guy on the court. So it would be the other team's big guy. And there's no way he could guard me out there. So, yeah, it became a real weapon. And, you know, nobody talked stretch four back then, but that's pretty much what I was. You guys had some loaded rosters at UCLA. I mean, um, Ed O'Bannon, obviously, late during your stretch, Ty and Sedney, those guys were the younger guys when, when you were older. But Tracy Murray, obviously, Gerald Mackins, Mitchell Butler, all, all those mm-hmm. you, just loaded rosters on, on the teams. And like you said, Pooh Richardson, when, when you first arrived, playing with a ton of talented guys, how much did you find it intimidating to be on rosters where the rest of the team was loaded? And especially because you were a guy, the reason I ask is because you're a guy like pointed, you pointed out your consistency, you're scoring nearly 20 a game for your entire career. So you were going to take your shots. So I've always wondered in terms of your mindset, how much were you intimidated playing with other well, talented again, players? Not to sound the wrong way, but intimidated wasn't even that, that <laughs> I, I was right. Right. I was the guy and everybody knew it. And don't mm-hmm. don't hopefully people listening don't take that the wrong way, but that was the case. I was the guy. I'll tell you a story and this is kind of embarrassing, but it it kind of will shed some light on what my mentality was. So, freshman year, first week of first couple days of practice, I believe it was the second day of practice. We're having two-a-day practices. It's the first practice in the morning. And Jim Herrick was great. He always knew who his lineup was, but when we were going over something new, he'd say, give me five, any five doesn't matter. But then he'd say, all right, Richardson, Wilson, but, you know, that one. Yeah. And yeah. So, so he calls out five in the morning, and Charles Rochelin was on the team, and he was a senior, I believe, maybe a junior, and he steps out there. And I was, like, talking to somebody. I wasn't paying attention and they're getting ready to start, and I walked on the court, and I said to Rosalind, you're in my spot. <laughs> and he got off the court. <laughs> but I wasn't kidding. I wasn't trying to be fouled I know. like dead serious. <clears throat> and so in terms of playing with all those good players, I think, and I'm sure they would tell you this, that because I'd had so much success as a freshman and those guys were all behind me, they kind of knew that, you know, and, and it wasn't a selfish thing. It was just a, hey, he's the guy, and we're really good. Let's all be together. Let's all be good together as a team. But there was never any, oh, wow, you know, maybe I, you know, should defer to whoever. No, there was never any of that. Right. All right. So then Tracy Murray joins you. He's one year behind. He joins the team. How much did you realize that you guys would, would be something special together? Well, we both could shoot, and his range was unbelievable. And and you know, and in 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 thinking about that now, it must have been a real nightmare for other coaches to try and decide how they were going to guard us. When you have mm-hmm. two forwards that can really shoot, and his range was to twenty seven, it 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 must have been really difficult to decide how you were going to defend us because if you have a starting five and you have a center and a power forward that are big. Well, they can't go out there and guard us. So now if you play small, 
Tracy and I both had the ability to go inside if we needed to, if we had small guys on us. And, you know, it was a game-by-game basis. There was games where, especially my senior year, his junior year, where one night I'd get 25, the next night he'd get 25. And it just kind of depended on where the ball went, but also who the other team keyed on more. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was really good. And, you know, the the, the sad part of it, and, and every guy on the team will tell you this, the sad part about that 92 team is we had the talent to win the whole thing. But at the end of the day, the reason we didn't was guys were just a little bit selfish. If everybody, not selfish to the degree that that it was really obvious, but selfish to the d- degree that nobody would give, and me included, would give just a little bit more for the betterment of the team so that we could win it all. You know, even the guards, like Derek Martin was a senior, good player, but Tyus kind of took his minutes, and that that sent Derek to the, you know, to the whatever you want to call it. He he checked out for a while, you know, arguments sometimes with with me and Tracy or the guards thought that we were shooting to whatever it was. That was that was the most disappointing thing about my career at UCLA is we lost in the Elite Eight because we weren't totally committed and totally selfless to win a championship. You know, it's interesting. I was watching that game actually earlier today, and um, one of the things that stood out is that they said that Tyus Edney had just started as the starting point guard during the tournament, which you would never hear of a freshman point guard starting when the tournament starts. And then, you know, the other thing that stood out, obviously, was you guys seemed to like came out flat. And a lot of the things that you're talking about were almost obvious, but you forget about that. You know, people forget about the year that you guys had up until that point. It was you're 28 and four. You're one of the top teams in the country. Number one seed is you're playing Indiana, a team that felt like you guys had a lot more talent then, uh, even yeah. though it was good, good Indiana team. What, what are your memories of that that game? Well, what's interesting about that is the first game of the year when they used to have that NIT tip-off game in Springfield, we played mm-hmm. Indiana and smoked them the first game of the year by 20. And when we got to the Elite Eight game, it seemed like we were a little bit tired, and I'm not sure why, but also that they had really game-planned for us based on the first time we played them earlier in the year like I remember you know our offense was good we had a lot of talent a lot of guys that could score but it seemed like wherever we went they were already there in terms of where we cut so they had really game planned well for us and I also think that all our stuff we got off to a bad start in that game and because we weren't totally committed to one another and in you know giving of ourselves we kind of let the game go and they blew us out. How much have you talked about that game with those other guys as the years have gone by? Um, you know, I see I see guys, it, it, if it comes up, and it really doesn't all that much, but it has in the past, it's more. It's not so much about that game. It's about what I've been saying, that right, if we right. had just given a little more of each other, and we're all more mature now, obviously. Back then we weren't, and, you know, we all thought that we needed to, get our numbers or get our shots or get our whatever so that we could get drafted higher and everybody just kind of, and again, it wasn't blatant, but everyone kind of had their own agenda at the end of the day that really kept us from, 
from not only beating Indiana, but maybe winning a championship. Don, during that time, Curry Kirkpatrick writes that long story about you and in Sports Illustrated. You were a college basketball star at a time when college basketball stars were really celebrities. I mean, they were well-known commodities nationally. Uh, what was campus life like that at that time? Yeah, it's funny because my wife, who I've been married to for 16 years now, and there's still people, obviously, because I'm still involved and I'm doing TV stuff, people come up. and But she, I always tell her, I'm like, you know, because there's still a lot of people that, that say stuff about UCLA. Like, oh, man, I saw you play at UCLA, that kind of thing. And and I always tell her, I said, you know, if you think people, you know, come up and say stuff now, you should have seen it back then. Um <laughs> Because you're right, it was a lot different. I mean, if whoever was how I was back in 1991, 92 at UCLA was the same now, mm-hmm. it, would, it wouldn't nearly be as, you know, because the Lakers, the Clippers, and it's just different now. Social media and all that stuff makes it different. But um, it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, um I want to say it was somewhat normal in the sense that I tried to keep it as normal because I was so focused on playing basketball. Um, right. But it's also nice when you go down to the the, the 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 places in Westwood where people are hanging out that people are, you know, you know, want to come talk to you and want to hang out with you and that kind of thing. Um, but trying to be really regular was almost impossible, but I did right. try and keep it as normal as possible. You know, I tried to go home a lot because I felt like that kept me out of the fray and kept me out of, you know, maybe a little more humble like I needed right. to be. Um, so I did, I did some of that. Um, but it was fun. Don't get me wrong. It was fun, <laughs> but there was, there was, there was a, a small burden to that as well. You know, having to, um, having to be as watched, I guess, as someone in that situation would be. I remember when I was uh, at a high school tournament, when LeBron James, it was in his senior year, I was at a high school tournament and somebody had stopped me as he was like walking through the hallway. I saw a bunch of his games and somebody, he's walking through the halls and everyone around him, it must've been a hundred people just stopped and everyone's just looking at him. And you could just feel he felt all the eyes on him. And I've always thought that must be just such a hard thing. I mean, he's already dealt with it like you being a taller guy. People are already going to be drawn to looking over. But, yeah, you know, that kind uh, well, of I'm, attention. I'm, I'm sure LeBron's is a billion times worse than mine ever was. But I'll tell you what, it's interesting. You learn you, once that starts happening, it kind of started in high school for me where you can tell people recognize you. And it was always mm-hmm. different. You know, it's so funny because no one, I guess one of the perks of being a really good basketball player that's tall is that Mm -hmm. people don't say, how tall are you? Because they know who you are. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It sounds stupid, but it really is. It's like, hey, there's, there's, there's Don or whatever, instead of, hey, man, you're tall. How do you should play basketball? Like they already know you play basketball. Right, so, right. But you develop this sense of wherever you are, and I've always had this. Uh, again, my wife knows this now because I'll say something to her, 
you can be, it's almost like a CIA guy. Like you could be, I could be sitting in a restaurant or standing at the airport and I can tell if somebody's like looking at me and like trying to figure out who I am or they know who I am and they're trying to figure out what to come up and say to me. It's almost like you develop the sixth sense of people <laughs> watching you. It's kind of interesting. What was it like in terms of the celebrities being in LA? Did you have celebrity interactions as a no, I mean, back then, celebrities came to, and I guess they still do to a certain degree, but they used to come to UCLA games, and I'd get to meet some of them, and some of the people that I was friends with, I'd I'd go to Laker games, and you'd inevitably wind up in the Forum Club, and there'd be people in there, and so, yeah, there was there was stuff that, that I got to do that normal students probably didn't get to do, but in terms of, you know, I wasn't a big Hollywood guy, I didn't hang out in Hollywood, whether I could have or not, that wasn't really my thing. Um, right. You know, I didn't I didn't really get caught up in all that, whereas maybe some guys in that situation may have taken advantage of that. And maybe I'm stupid because I didn't. But <laughs> it just really wasn't my thing back then and still really isn't. Hey, you're happily married now, so it's it's worked well, out regardless. It's just, I don't. Yeah, that's that's never been my personality to be, you know, a big party guy and big crowds and, you know, all that stuff. I want to ask you about the coaching staff that that was there at UCLA. So Herrick's the head coach, but Mark Godfrey and Steve Lavin are assistants on that staff. What are your memories of them? Well, Godfrey was a graduate assistant my freshman year, so he was there all four years with me. Brad Holland, mm-hmm. the great UCLA player, L.A. Laker, was a coach there. Tony Fuller, who was a coach at San Diego State for a while, Um they were there, and then Lavin came in my senior year. He was a graduate assistant my senior year. Um, I liked those guys, and I always knew that Gottfried was going to be a good head coach at some point. You could kind of tell even back then. He had just finished playing. I think he played – I forget. I'd have to look it up. But he played for a year or two and then decided he wanted to coach. So he actually – it's funny. He and Pooh Richardson used to go at it my freshman year because Mark was still – you know, to, had just finished playing, so he was still really good. Right. And so him and Pooh used to go at it all the time. But, you know, they were a great staff. And Coach Herrick, the, the greatest thing about Coach Herrick was this, is that he understood who his players were and managed them accordingly. By that I mean he knew the guys that could be screamed at, so he screamed at them. He knew the guys that couldn't be screamed at, so he didn't scream at them. He knew that – I wasn't going to be the best defensive player on the team, so why try and make me the best defensive player on the team? But he knew I could get 20 points a night, so I'm going to get him 20 points a night. And I always appreciated that. I even use that to a certain degree when I coach my kids and stuff now. It's like I really believe that you coach to your personnel, don't make your personnel play to how you coach. And he was great at that. He really was, and and he let us play. You know, now in the day in college basketball today, if you turn it over two times in a row, you get yanked out. He wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn it over two times in a row, his belief was that you'd make the right play the next time. And if I missed my first five shots, he didn't yank me out because he knew there was a good chance I was going to make the next five. And I think that was a big part of, you know, like we were talking earlier about my success as a freshman. I think that was a big part of it. He He allowed me – to screw up he allowed me to make mistakes but not yank me out of the game where and I don't think coaches really understand this that as mad as you are that your player just screwed up when you mm-hmm. yank them out you're taking a little bit of their confidence every time and 
And so much of sports, in basketball in particular, is about confidence. And when you start stripping that confidence away, you're never going to get the player that 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 player could be. And, and right. I hate watching that, and I see it way too much, where coaches expect kids to get yanked out of the game, but then you put them back in, and they're supposed to go out there and play with a ton of confidence. Well, how? <laughs> you know, I've seen it. So many examples of that. Guys that should have been good college players, at least, never really became great college players because they could never play with any confidence because they were never allowed to mess up but continue playing and build the coach's trust. Two things on that. I saw Jamal Murray uh, a couple weeks ago playing for Kentucky, and he was on the break and tried a behind-the-back pass, turned it over. Calipari went nuts. He's a freshman. He's about to pull him out, and he decided not to. He also knows Murray's probably his best player, so you know doesn't want to take him out for that reason. But you could sense also if Murray comes out in that moment, some of the fun that he's having, that confidence, that that goes away. By Calipari yelling at him, and you could see it from the sideline, he learned his lesson, but not taking him out goes to exactly your point. And I thought yeah. I had that same thought that don't take the kid out because you're going to yeah. crush him a little bit. Now, granted bad pass, but still. And then, and watching your tapes, I, I saw that same thing that you're describing, which I found so fascinating was, you know, when you would have games where you went through a little rut where you're missing some shots, I noticed with you also that, you know, you'd stay in the game and inevitably get a chance to get your rhythm going. But I, I also noticed that you seem to be very aggressive when you hadn't gotten a shot up for a while or hadn't gotten a touch for a while that you realized that the team needed you to to take things over again, coming from that same mindset and that confidence for you, Don? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always believed that I was going to play good eventually, you know, and there's some games where you don't, and there's some games where you're off, where you're missing shots that you feel like you should make. Here's another good example. I have a lifelong friend of mine that really knows the game that really helped me a ton. He didn't, he doesn't have a title or anything. He's just a friend. And, um, but really knows the game at a high level, was friends with a lot of NBA people and whatever. And he, you know, I started talking and working with him when I was like a freshman in high school, and he really helped me. And so he always tells his story. And this goes back to my mindset. You know, we're playing, uh, who was it my freshman year? I think it was Louisville when they were number one in the country, Purvis Ellison and, and all those guys. And I think I had – 18 it's on national tv back when there was only one national tv game a weekend you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so i have 18 as a freshman it's like january it's pretty good stuff right and so he comes over and he's like yeah you you know you played pretty well you guys won i'm like yeah but those those two baseline shots i missed and like that was the mentality that as as good as i played in any game i always felt like it could have been better so right if you're talking about during the game, I'm always thinking it could be better. You know, what, however many points I had or however many shots I made, I was always focused on, well, I could have done that better. I shouldn't have missed that shot. I can't believe I missed a free throw. And I think that really, you know, that kind of mentality or that mindset is why I was able, you know, to, to have as much success as I did. You know, a lot of freshmen, if they get 21 night, they get four the next because they're still celebrating the 20 from Thursday night, you know? Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I know I've heard Larry Bird say that he was always frustrated after games. I think his quote was something along the lines of that he played the game because he always wanted to have that perfect game. 
and he had never had it. So he felt it always gave him a reason to keep, keep playing. All right. So your college career finishes up. Now it's time for the NBA draft. You go 19th in the draft and then you're immediately traded to the Clippers. You go 19th in the draft to the Pistons and then you're traded to the Clippers. What was that whole whirlwind like in terms of just draft day, your memories from that and the trade and, and, and everything you can recollect from that time? Well, when I got drafted, I was at home. I didn't go to New York because not that many guys, not as many as today go. There was probably only, I don't know, five or six or seven that went back then. But I remember when I got drafted, my agent, Arn Tellum, called me, and his first comment was, the suburbs are nice in Detroit. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't very comforting because I'd never been away from home. I mean, to live. I you know, went to UCLA, and that was it. And and then, like, an hour later, a friend called. It might not even been an hour. I forget how long it was. But a friend called, and, and he was like, can't believe you're playing for the Clippers. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, they traded you to the Clippers. And then Arn Tellum called me again, like, 30 seconds later. He's like, yeah, they traded you to the Clippers. And that was back before the rookie scale. That was when agents could negotiate whatever contract they wanted for rookies. So we were trying to work out a contract with them all summer. Larry Brown was a coach. I made the mistake of working out with them without a contract, you know, in the summer, you know, they'd mm-hmm. have informal workouts and I would go down there even without a contract and work out. No one would do that in a million years today. <laughs> and I guess how I played the summer turns out Larry Brown didn't really want me after all. <laughs> so, so they traded me to Washington basically two days into training camp. And that was that. So I flew out to D.C. We had training camp in West Virginia. I was there and then uh, came back and settled in in Maryland because uh, that, <clears throat> that was back when the Bullets played at the uh, the Cap Center. And we practiced in Bowie, Maryland. So I was out in kind of the suburbs of Maryland and was there for four years. Crazy, crazy journey. So uh, what was the adjustment like from college game to the NBA? Well, my rookie year, that was back when rookies didn't play. didn't matter who you were, unless you were Shaq or, you know, the first five picks in the draft. You weren't going to play a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot, and our team wasn't very good. And, and I hate to say this because it doesn't sound right, but it's really the truth. It was a blessing that we weren't very good because I got a lot of opportunities, even though it, a lot of it was in garbage time. Like, we were down 25, and I don't know how many, Adam, fourth quarters I played the entire fourth quarter because we were getting blown out, but a lot. But that really helped me because, you know, when, you, when you're a rookie and you get to go in and play three minutes, that does nothing. You need to play, like, 12 minutes or a half. That's how you start to figure it out. And that, those, even though the games were meaningless and we were down by whatever we were down by, I got big chunks of minutes and was able to kind of figure out how to score. And so right. after that rookie year, I had some success, some, some games where I had 20 points, you know, in, in not that many minutes. So that gave me a little bit of confidence. And then what I did figure out was I needed to work on my body even more, like big mm-hmm. time. So I decided that I was going to find, you know, I was going to find a, a, you know, a strength and conditioning guy that could, could do it and I came back home and really focused on that part the summer was all about that I still played and still you know did individual skill work stuff but really it was about my body and when I came back for my second year 
I was physically ready to go. I was in great condition, um, had gotten stronger, and was ready to to deal with you know how big and strong NBA guys were. And you had a great second year there, averaging over 18 points a game and six boards, over two assists, shooting 50 percent from from the floor. Referenced the the fact that you figured out ways to score. You're a guy that scored over 2,600 points in in college. So what were some of those like tips and tricks that you had that you figured out while you were an NBA player? The one thing I really figured out was how to get fouled um, mm-hmm. and get the free ones at the line. I figured out that you could manufacture points by not waiting for it to come to you, that you go get it. So if you could get an offensive rebound or two a game, if you could run the floor, and, and that goes back to part of the conditioning, you run hard every time. See, a lot of guys don't run hard every time because they don't think they're going to get it every time. But if you run hard every time, you're going to get it two or three times. And I kind of figured that part out of it. Um, you know, spacing. Um, and the biggest thing, and this still is true in today's game, changing speeds is a big thing in the NBA because everybody's a good athlete. If you're always going one speed, no matter how fast it is, mm-hmm. it's easy to sit on it. And so I figured out that you could go slow to fast, fast to slow, and that really got you open. It got got to your spots to make shots. You know, I've always been pretty smart at, at offensive basketball. And so when I got to the league, it was more about figuring out the length of it and the, and the strength of it to get mm-hmm. to my spots where I could make shots. What was your favorite experience in the NBA? I mean, you played with Washington, Denver, Philly, New Jersey, Seattle, Phoenix. You know, Miami. I was hurt was so much, Adam, that my, it, it's, it's, it's disappointing to me that my NBA career, even though I played for a long time because I think I was good enough, is that I was just hurt so much. You know, it was one thing after another, but at the end of the day, my left knee just kind of wore out from play, from basically from jump roping on concrete at seven years old or whatever. Right. Yeah. But that's the disappointing part is I knew that I was good enough, you know, my second year. And there was even other years where the numbers were good, but I only played in 40 games or whatever it was. It's just mm-hmm. disappointing looking back on it that I could never really stay healthy for for long periods of time, and um, because I knew I was good enough, I was I knew I was good enough to play as long as I could as as long as I wanted. It's just right. my my knee and some other things just wouldn't allow me to do that to where I just couldn't practice anymore. And at the very end, if I practiced for two days in a row, I couldn't play the next day, and that's the only real disappointing part. But what 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 I'm proud of is that I got myself good enough to know that I was good enough to play in the NBA for as long as I wanted. Right. That that to me right. is satisfying. That other players knew that I was good, and I know that I was good enough to play. I, I wasn't just a guy that got picked up for ten days here and there. I was a guy that was good enough to stick in the league for a while. You say that, and this theme just keeps coming up. The idea of like. That again, that that confidence and and knowing where you stood, was there something when you were when you were really young that you still look back upon that like there was a player that people thought were was better than you or something that like again where that chip sort of comes from? You know, it's a great question. I don't think so. I think it just is. I think there's some <laughs> people like that. I think, you know, I think my personality, my my DNA makeup 
wants me to compete and wants me to be able to achieve that, you know, I don't like the term he's afraid of failure, but failure wasn't an option, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on a mission to make it to the NBA, and and I'm proud of the fact that I did, you know. A lot of guys Mm -hmm. say they want to do it. A lot of guys plan on doing it and don't. I was able to accomplish that. I had a lot of help along the way from a lot of people, and a lot of things went my way. But at the end of the day, I put in the work to get good enough to play in the NBA. Is there one game, there might not be a a season because of the injuries, as you alluded to, but is there one game that stands out to you that you just have fond memories that just everything was clicking? One game that that I knew that I was in that realm of being good enough to play for as long as I wanted was we were playing – well, I shouldn't say that for this particular game, but it was in this time frame. We were at Golden State, and at the time, that was like Chris Mudd. It wasn't – I think Hardaway was gone by then. I forget what the timing of it was, but um, it was Mullen and Hardaway and those guys. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were, on, we, were on the, we were on the road there, and I missed a point-blank layup to start the game. I mean, literally wide open, underneath the basket, nobody around me, and missed it. And after the third quarter, I had 35. <laughs> and didn't play. it didn't play the fourth because we were playing the, the next night in L.A. and we were getting smoked as usual. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, injuries. Then, finally, uh, 2000, 2001 season with the Heat, playing eight games, and then, and then that's it for you. And then I actually had a contract for the next year. I had surgery. It's interesting. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is kind of put a bow on the whole injury thing. So I go, mm-hmm. and I had been missing practices and whatnot along the way. Um, that that season, I only played eight games. So after the season, I go to our team doctor. I'm like, look, something's got to give. I can't practice. If I practice, I can't play in the game. If I play in the game, I can't practice, which means, you know, can't really play in the game. You know, it was like a whole thing. I said, what can we do? And he said, because it wasn't an ACL, it wasn't an injury. It's literally that my left knee had worn out from so many years and so many, you know, playing so much from such an early age. He's like, look, I can go in there. I can clean it out. You know, you can rehab it, try and strengthen it after I do that. And if it works, you might be able to play for another year or two. If it doesn't, you're done. And so I did the surgery, rehabbed all summer, rehabbed the first part of training camp, and then started to play, and I was done. I walked into Pat Riley's office. I said, you know what? I really don't want to stay here all year. I know I'm done. I just kind of want to go home, and I'm done playing basketball. And he called my agent, Mark Bartlestein, and at first, I was just going to take a buyout so that I could go home and not have to be there all year, knowing that my career was over. And so I agreed to a buyout, flew home the next day or whatever, and they actually made a trade so I wouldn't have to do the buyout. They traded me to Toronto. And so I got the last year of that contract from Toronto, um, but I was at home. But that wow. was that was the end, yeah. Wow. Uh how difficult was the transition from MB to you'd played so long in your career and all of a sudden you're not playing at all? You know, it was, um, 
I was ready to be done, I think because I had been so disappointed the last three, four years of being injured and not really being the player that I knew I could be. So I think from just a pure basketball standpoint, I was good with being done. Um, you know, I'd just gotten married that year. I was getting ready to have my first kid um, the next uh, spring. So we, my wife was already pregnant when I when that all went down when I came back from Miami and all that. So I was kind of I was kind of focused on that. I was focused on having my first kid and deciding what I was going to do. And for the first probably eight, nine months, I really didn't do much. I just kind of was around and home. And then when we had our son, I was obviously really involved in that and doing all that stuff and played a lot of golf at that time. (laughs) And then the next year, I started doing UCLA radio and kind of did it for that year, seeing if I liked it. If I didn't, I wouldn't do it again, but I really liked it, and so I did did UCLA radio for a long time. And a couple of years after that, some TV stuff came on and, you know, been doing that ever since. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, I, I do believe that you're one of the best basketball broadcasters in the country. And I don't think you get enough credit for that. that. What's your uh, broadcasting philosophy? I think what I've always wanted to be is a broadcaster. And I was, I'm, I'm forever grateful to UCLA and Chris Roberts, who I started doing it with, because I didn't know anything about it. But when I started doing it, I decided that I was going to call them like I see them, but Mm -hmm. really, but but also be instructional with how I call them like I see them. And I've gotten better at the call them like I see them part. Like I used to be pretty harsh, um, because there's a way to call them like you see them without it's sounding like you're getting on the player or the team or the coach. So I've gotten a lot better at that, but I think people appreciate that no matter if it's UCLA where I played at, no matter if it's the Clippers who I've been doing their games forever, I think people appreciate the honesty in it and the instructional part of it. You know, I think there's a way of telling the story of a play or a game or a season in if it's not going great to be able to say why it's not going great versus just saying it's not going great. And that's what I've always tried to do is be more instructional and formative rather than just saying what people are already watching. To me, the guys that are really good aren't always on the game. They're talking about big picture stuff or talking about philosophy or, you know, nuances of the game versus, wow, what a great layup by, you know, John Smith. You know, they see it's a great layup by John Smith. Why? And so, you know, it's evolved over the years, but I really enjoy doing it, and I hope people see that, you know, or hear that, that I enjoy doing it. It's not always exciting and me jumping out of my seat, but I enjoy breaking down teams. I enjoy breaking down players and informing people of my opinions and what I see of players and coaches and teams. So it's really an enjoyable thing. And if, you know, I'm lucky that I get to do it and I'm appreciative that I've gotten to do it for this long. When you're broadcasting a game, what are you envisioning in terms of the audience that you're directly speaking to? Who is that, that person that you're that's a good question. I don't think about that. I kind of lose myself in my own thoughts 
and don't don't really worry. It, it's funny because I get older women come up to me and say, I really love what you do. I get high school kids come up to me. I get middle-aged guys my age. So I think what I've done, not really even intentionally, is not worry about who the audience is. I just lose myself and my thought and what I see and just hope that people like it. And you know this, Adam. It's subjective, not everybody. I'm sure there's people who hate what I do. But I think overall, just staying how how I think I should do it and not worrying about if people don't like it. I've never once worried mm-hmm. if people like it or not. The only people that you care who like it or not are the people you work for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And even sometimes then it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. The yeah, it's you know I've always found that the 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 best the best broadcasters are the ones that are um, I don't courageous is probably the wrong word, but people that aren't very good at it aren't courageous. And what I mean by that is they'll be calling games or doing studio or what have you. And they're so afraid of how a future employer might look at it or one of their buddies might see it or, you know, and there's a way to, like you described, critical is not always the correct term, but there's a way to describe what's right, what's wrong in your own personal opinion. So I'm glad that you. Exactly right. I've always thought about that being, I, I think fearless is a better word. Mhm. Mhm. And I look at it this way. I really care about what I do. I care about doing a good job, but on the other hand, I don't care. And that's how you have to be. You can't care right. what people think. Really. You know, I care <laughs> I care I care if I care if people that run a network or have, you know, I care obviously because you want to have a place to work, but I don't care if people like it or not. And I think that's what you're speaking to is when you don't care, it comes across so much more free and open and honest versus contrived and, you know, staying on a narrow course versus opening it up and really expanding and talking about different things and trying to have fun sometimes and joking around, you know, here and there to add to the broadcast. And that's how I've always approached it, that I really care because I really want to do this. But on the other right. hand, I really don't care. Anytime I'm watching you do a game or you're in studio, I always feel like you're sounding exactly the same way you would be if we were watching the game in my living room or, you know, just hanging out in, in some uh, bar watching the game. It sounds like your commentary almost comes off and your expertise in that same way. Did you ever did you ever think about coaching? You know, I did. And the one, the one and, I'm, and I'm really appreciative of it, is that financially I did pretty well playing in the NBA, so that allowed me to make some decisions. And one of the decisions I wanted to make, or one of the decisions I made, is I didn't want to live anywhere else. I love where I live, and I didn't want to move my family all over the country. And if you want to be a coach, that's the case. And so that kind of took coaching out of it right away. Fortunately, what I do now, code, and it's not nearly anything like coaching in college or the NBA, but coaching travel program that my sons are in. I coach teams there. You know, I I do stuff for Adidas and Adidas Nations coaching there. I do pre-draft for for CAA. That's coaching individually. So Mm -hmm. I actually get some coaching throughout the year, even though I don't really have a coaching title. But that was the real reason why I never pursued coaching is I didn't want to have to move all over the country. Just wasn't didn't want to be a coach that much that I was willing to do that. 
it's just interesting because like I said, your expertise and because of the way that you can convey certain messages and how you explain things, I think would certainly resonate. There's no doubt that I think you would be an outstanding coach and you, and you are, like you said, especially with the individual workouts. And I just want to close with that. Over this past summer, no, you worked, you worked out some of the biggest names in the draft, Carl Anthony Towns, Willie Cauley-Stein, uh, Devin Booker. Yeah. You single-handedly knew more about this incoming uh, draft class than, than anyone, um, both their mental makeup, physically, the work ethic, all that stuff. Out of the guys I mentioned, anything, anything stand out in terms of your memories and, and what you think of those guys going forward as well, NBA players? I've been doing this for a while now, I think 11 years pre-draft work, and this past year was by far the most challenging, but yet the most rewarding, and by that I mean when you have four lottery picks in your gym for five weeks, (laughs) there's a lot of attention there, and a lot of people want to get in there and film them, a lot of people want to talk to you about them, a lot of people just want to come watch, you know, we had to have security this year at the at the front because we do it at a health club and once people started catching wind of who was in there it turned into people just showing up that weren't even members of the health club and but on the other hand to be able to work with those guys and just see how good they were and get and get to really I mean to get to know them's great and because you you know spending that much time with them you get to know them so you want them to do well um my job is to get them drafted as high as I can and they can that's Mm -hmm. my job and so hopefully that goes well and it did on draft day but then after that you watch them and you want to see them grow and you hope that they turn into all-stars at some point but it is and the reason I said I've been doing it for a long time is every year is different and you get different personalities and you're right I know after I'm done with them I pretty much know who's going to get to what level in the NBA or not. You can just tell by their work ethic, by are they coachable, um, their physical toolbox, their skill set. You kind of have a good idea. Like Towns is going to be a multi-time all-star and wouldn't be surprised if he's one of the greatest of all time. Wow. And I say that because I got to see him work. I got to see him listen to what I'm saying. I got to see him spend extra time at the strength and conditioning place after we were done. I got to see him interact with people and how he treats people, you know, all that stuff that people don't get to see where that stuff translates and that stuff matters. And that stuff is what makes you become, you know, great versus just pretty good. And so it's really fun for me to get the opportunity to work with those guys every year, but also to kind of know, you know, before everybody else gets to know really who they are as NBA players, kind of who they are, you know? Yeah, I think every team would gladly trade places with you in terms of their evaluation and get to do the work that, that you're well, doing. Well, they do. I mean, yeah, I mean, I they call. They all, mm-hmm. you know, they know because I've been doing it for a while. And there's there's guys that call me every year. There's some guys that only call when they when I have a guy that's kind of in their draft range. But, yeah, it's it's – it's a luxury for me to see it because it's one thing to have a guy even for two days, you know, you really don't get to see it. You know, I get to see him when it's day five of the first week and, and it's Friday and they've been going since Monday and I know they're tired, mm-hmm. but I want to see who's going to give in to being tired and who isn't that kind of stuff is what's really telling to me. 
Real quickly, Devin Booker, who I just touched on, mentioned that he was one of your guys shooting over 70% right now from three-point land in the NBA, obviously very small sample size. Uh, how much credit do you want to take for that, Don? I don't take – listen, Adam, I don't get any credit because between April, whatever, they get out here, it changes every year. But April to June, I get them ready to go work out for teams. But then think about it. After the draft, which is in June, they go straight to their city – and they're basically there for June, July, August, September, you know, until training camp starts. So I don't take any credit. The only thing I can take credit for, and I was just talking to somebody today about this, is if I can get a guy who when the, well, basically this time of year up until the pre-draft process starts, everybody's kind of got a range. Oh, he's, he's probably going 20 to 30. Oh, he's a second rounder. If I can get any of my guys to move up, that's mm-hmm. what I could take credit for, meaning Paul George is probably my best example, and Alfred Payton. Paul George was supposed to go anywhere from 22 to early second round. He ended up going 10th. Alfred Payton was late first. He ended up going 10th. So that's, that's what I'll take some credit for, is them moving up in the draft, them doing well in their pre-draft workouts, and then getting drafted higher. But in terms of once they get to the NBA – I can't take any credit for that. And Don, last question for you. In terms of advising a player in that situation that's going to be drafted into the NBA, regardless of what, whether first round, non-guaranteed, second round, all that, just in terms of advising a player, I know it's there's probably much, much more advice you can give than this, but just really quickly, what would you tell a player that's about to enter the league that has just been a college star, what advice would you give? And I, and this, this goes way back and it's so true. And I still see guys that will not listen, save your money. I'm telling you, save your money. Everybody wants to have the cars and all that stuff. Save your money because you don't understand it now. You will once you get to 35 to 40 years old, whenever you're done playing. It would be nice to be able to decide what you're going to do versus being have to go do something that you don't want to do because you didn't save your money. If you're, in that, if you're in that situation, meaning you play long enough in the NBA to have earned enough to do that, hopefully you've saved enough of it. Because everyone's situation playing-wise is going to be different. You know, you might get an opportunity, you might not. You know, I think the other thing I guess I'd tell guys is you can't get frustrated without playing. You have to continue to work. And C.J. Wilcox was one of my guys. He's a Pac-12 guy. You know, he hasn't mm-hmm. played, didn't play last year, hasn't really played this year, but I see him all the time, and I said, just keep working. You will, because you're good enough. You will get an opportunity either here with the Clippers or somewhere else and you have to be ready when you get that opportunity. That's the biggest thing. Don, I really, really appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. It was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. We'll do it again. So there you have it. Don McClain, one of the best college basketball players of all time. He doesn't want to put himself amongst the greats in terms of Lou Alcindor and, and Bill Walton at UCLA, but 
but he was that good. And as he discussed, he was that consistent. And maybe he wasn't an all-timer that we talk about NBA-wise, but certainly at the college level, he was unstoppable. Great, great talent and uh, just truly fun to watch. And also, again, had had some spurts in the NBA when he was healthy, as he talked about, where he was terrific. And I really appreciate Don's insight in his high school career, college career, MBAs, and of course now what he's doing. So Don McLean, we really appreciate having you on the show. And I, as always, want to thank you for listening. It's been awesome to have the audience that we've had so far for the Great Point Podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I think that'll do it. We'll catch you next time.